I talk about in my book that there's a producer we worked with who said that I sounded better when I was drunk. Well, I was 19 years old at the time. So that's all you really need as a kind of a springboard into, well, this is a thing I should do because I'm better when I do this. So then all those little mythologies that you build for yourself go along. So by the time we're making a record in 2014, I now have this personal mythology that I have to drink a bottle of red wine in order to write a song. Pollux.com, in partnership with Heart Support and the Global Recovery Initiatives Foundation, is proud to present High Notes, a podcast about addiction and recovery in the music industry. I'm your host, James Shotwell. My guest this episode is Mr. Andy Bierzak, otherwise known as Andy Black, the founding member and lead vocalist for Black Veil Brides, one of the hottest alternative rock bands on the planet. Andy recently released a book, They Don't Need to Understand, that documents his life in music and his struggle with addiction. He's on the show today to talk more about that struggle and the lessons he's learned along the way. Andy's insights give us a first-hand look at what it's like to be the hottest new band in the music industry and how the music industry's cultural norms can sometimes influence our behavior in destructive ways. But when we first connect over the phone, my first question for Andy is just how long he's been sober. I have been sober for uh, six years, I think. It, it's uh, it's a little bit muddy because I know it's at least five years, but I think it might be six years. The only issue is that I had been sober for a long time. And then first solo, I had been sober for about a year and then my first solo record came out. And I went to a dinner with the label and everybody was celebrating. And I thought, well, you know, I'll have some wine here. And then within a couple hours, I was completely blacked out drunk and in the back of my publicist's car and him driving me back to the hotel. And I thought, well, no, never mind. I guess that's, you know, <laughs> because I, I, for me, that was, it was one of those things where the journey to stop drinking was not difficult. It was the journey to no longer find context in which it was appropriate as appropriate, to be able to justify moments and go, oh, well, now is when I should do it. So I would say that in totality, it would be five years since I've done anything, but it's been six Six years since I had that first kind of epiphany of like, this is, this needs to be a change in my life. I don't think he would agree with me, but I believe Andy Black is one of the few modern rock stars. There are plenty of rock musicians, but since the dawn of the millennium, very few new artists have ascended to that level of popularity where they almost seem larger than life. Andy and his brothers and Black Veil Brides are symbols of alternative music worldwide. And as you'll hear him explain, Sometimes, attempting to embody the idea of what a rock star should be is part of the problem. The knowing of what the rock star ambition or the fantasy, the knowing of what that is, I think, is symptomatic of the problem. Because even if your personality doesn't necessarily jive with these ideals or this concept of stardom and, to a certain extent, uh, adulation or power or fun or all these kind of buzzwords that are thrown around, even if your personality doesn't jive with it, I think it's very hard to not try to rationalize a way that you should involve yourself in that because that's what's expected of you when you reach a certain threshold of career success in this industry. There is an expectation that that is part of who you are and especially when everyone else seems to be doing it and you're being 
encouraged to do it. For me, I guess part of my biggest issue that I had at a young age was I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. For the first couple tours that we did, I didn't drink. And then over time, it's almost like it becomes this thing where you go, I'm supposed to do this. So why am I not doing it? I, you know, and then you do it and then it fixes something you think. You know, for me, it was, I've had terrible anxiety and OCD and things my whole life. I didn't know that there was, oh, if I get really drunk, then I don't think about it. And if I get really drunk, then I'm I'm not anxious. Or when I get really drunk, I can lower inhibitions and I can be social in ways that I am never able to do normally. And so this sudden cure for a thing that had ailed me my whole life felt like, okay, well, not only am I doing this, this plays into my job. It's encouraged. It's around me constantly. It is part and parcel of the aesthetic and the ideas of hard rock or glam rock or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So all those things, the entry point becomes, this is a thing you're supposed to do. So you might as well do it. And isn't it crazy? And aren't you wild? And aren't you better than the kid that's just scared in your own head? Anyone who reads Andy's book, they don't need to understand, will learn that he started life as a relatively quiet child living in Ohio. But at some point, as we now know, he became the person that we've all seen on posters and in music videos and everywhere else. I wanted to know, as it related to his addiction, when he found himself first partaking in drugs and alcohol. And while he doesn't have a clear memory of exactly when it began, I think he gets pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish that I could remember the first time that I entered into the, the world of being a drunk person all the time. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't wish that I could, but however, it, for context of this conversation, it might be helpful. I do remember one moment, and it might not have been the first one, but I remember being at a house party at, I used to live in an apartment that we, uh, I describe in the book as, it was yeah. Jinx dubbed it the compound. And it was just this disgusting one bedroom apartment in Hollywood that somehow, despite the fact that we were at the bottom rung of the, Hollywood band totem pole became uh, like a real hang spot for bands in the scene and bands that were much more successful than ours. And they would come around and with that would be drugs and alcohol and things that maybe weren't, you know, in our sphere yet. Um, and I remember having like a house party and somebody who was a pretty successful musician being there and drinking it's like bottom shelf vodka, right? And that bottle's going around. And I had never had alcohol before. I had smoked weed as a kid and I freaked out and thought that I was dying. I had smoked cigarettes like a chimney, but I wasn't an avid trier of things. My fear of food and all the other things that I've had my whole life where I'm very specific about what is me and what are the things I think about myself and what I do. So I had never tried it, despite having been at this point on a couple of regional tours and stuff. But I, I remember drinking some of the vodka and getting that first buzz and it feeling like the buzz that I had gotten the first time I smoked a cigarette, where there was just this sudden rush of a chemical that wasn't already in my mind. There was a chemical that wasn't already in my body. There was something new entering the field of who I was and being like, holy shit. And then not really being drunk, but having that and then going, well, this is a thing that I should start doing because that was really fucking cool. So I'm going to keep trying that. And it really, you know, it didn't get dark, or at least it didn't get perceivably dark for me until 2014, 2013, 2014, and especially 2015. But that was also due to personal, I had physical injuries that I was masking with alcohol use and taking drugs for the pain. And that's when it got dark. At the beginning, I didn't realize, or at least it didn't feel like at the time that there was anything other than just fun and having a good time. And then we started going on tour. And then that fun and having a good time gets a hell of a lot harder when you're fucked up all the time. 
And then you're dealing with the the imbalance in terms of your central nervous system of constantly uh, abusing yourself with alcohol and drugs or whatever else, and then having to bounce back the next day to try to work and, and perform and give a decent show. So the show became more difficult, life became more difficult, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're you're drinking to try to mask the fact that you feel like it's just a bag of dicks every day going on stage. So yeah. it, it, the the early part of us touring, you know, it wasn't Motley Crue. It was we were playing in clubs to, you know, 100 people and we had some hype around us, but the drinking was just this kind of pirate ship all for one, one for all mentality. And oh, we're getting yeah. drunk and having fun. It wasn't until for me that I started drinking alone uh, <laughs> that, that it became a dark situation. I think it's fairly easy to justify drinking when you're around people that you know or even strangers. But when you find yourself drinking alone, especially if you've purposely isolated yourself from others, that's a clear sign that things aren't going well. Yeah, I mean, I'd gotten to the point um, where I wouldn't write a song. Oh, I, mm-hmm. There was a lot. I mean, look, you, everybody can pass the buck and, and blame other people yeah. for their issues. Early on in my career, you have to understand, the band started when I was 16 years old. I was a teenager during our first tours. You know, we talked about tours from 2010, 2011. I'm, I'm a literal teenager at that point. Mm-hmm. I am around people who are saying and doing things that are dictating. For me, I was unaware of it, but I'm trying to personality mirror and become things from guys that are five, 10 years older than me who either are successful or appear successful. And so, and I want to be some of that. I want to be like that because that's what, you know, adults that I think are successful are doing. And also dealing with people on the business side, not my own team, but on an outside level, whether it was producers or whoever else that would say things flippantly that they didn't realize had a big impact on somebody so young. I talk about in my book that there's a producer we worked with who said that I sounded better when I was drunk. Well, I was 19 years old at the time. So that's all you really need as a kind of a springboard into, well, this is a thing I should do because I'm better when I do this. So then all those little mythologies that you build for yourself go along. So by the time we're making a record in 2014, I now have this personal mythology that I have to drink a bottle of red wine in order to write a song. So I'd sit alone in a hotel room, drink an entire bottle of red wine, which is just basically acid. And then, you know, and by acid, I don't mean the drug. I mean, like literal, like bile acid fight passing out and sit at a hotel desk with a little pen and paper and try to write a song that made any sense. And that's a pretty depressing place to be. Andy is touching on a very common trap that addicts fall into. They have a moment of creative brilliance when they're using their substance of choice and then give in to the idea that they always need that substance in order to be creative. It happens to everyone, myself included and other members of our team. But it's important to realize that's all in your head. That is not reality. One of the biggest issues that people who are artistically inclined face is that oftentimes that comes part and parcel with anxiety or a self-seriousness or a a heightened self-awareness internally that precludes you from being able to give yourself to artistic pursuits or moments or fun. And I believe that there is a pretty direct lineage between inebriation and trying to not take yourself so seriously or trying to live more in the moment. And those things are, they don't make sense when you break them down from a scientific level or whatever you want to say. Poisoning yourself so you can have more fun is crazy. But from a I need to to be able to experience this. How can I experience it without telling myself in my head that I'm not experiencing it or I'm stupid or this is crazy or I'm I'm I don't like doing it or I don't like talking to people or whatever you want to say. 
I think that that direct link often rears its head with art artists or people who are artistically inclined because it's so prevalent that people that love art or performance or to make things often live deep inside their heads and hearts as opposed to being more extroverted. There came a point while Black Veil Brides were working on their 2011 album, Set the World on Fire, that the band's branding and aesthetic began to change. All of a sudden, it seemed like they were becoming the next big Sunset Strip rock band, following in the steps of groups like Poison and Motley Crue by creating an alternate reality where they were this raucous party band who were the biggest thing on the planet that you absolutely had to see to believe. And while that worked from a marketing perspective, Andy himself will be the first to tell you that many artists who try to pursue this approach ultimately fall on hard times. I had almost no interest in being in a Sunset Strip party band. I just liked the idea of being able to be part of something that felt like it was based in some rock history. Do you know what I mean? Spending time around these locations and these people, you know, another important point to make is that at the time that we're kind of in the Fallen Angels set the world on fire era, we're also being championed by those same bands that were the original era of it. it mm -hmm. At any given time, mm -hmm. I look around and we're doing a photo shoot with Nikki Six, or we're going on tour with Motley Crue, or we have Sebastian Bach on stage with us, or we're performing with Dee Snyder, or Alice Cooper's talking about us in Rolling Stone. How exactly, if you're the age that I was then, even if you had even a minor interest in the aesthetics to the ideas of that era, how do you not just lean into it? Because for me, I had never been accepted by any scene. Growing up in Cincinnati, playing in a band that's dressed in misfits makeup in front of like courage crew kids like I, there was no element of people giving a shit about what we were doing and if anything it was much the opposite where there was no community for us there was nowhere to turn there was no other bands that enjoyed us we would play shows with other bands and the only places we could fit in were with other weird bands but other weird bands didn't necessarily sound like us like i loved playing local shows with foxy shazam which is one of my favorite bands but our fans and their fans had no intersection there was no community so suddenly now we are hated by the metal community being called things like the shit stain on the asshole of the universe by you know metal sucks or whatever else but when i turn around there's this whole community of the 80s hair metal world that is standing there with open arms going, you're our guys to lead us into the next generation. And so it just made sense. It would be a lie to say that I was unaware of the fact that we were dressing exactly like Shout the Devil era Motley Crue. It would be a lie to say that I was unaware of the fact that my stage banter, our interviews, the things I was saying, the way I was carrying myself, the fact that alcohol and drugs and everything played such a part into the presentation. If I was unaware of that, I would have been a fool. But mm -hmm. the only thing I can say about that era is it was never as disingenuous as I think maybe some people perceived as far as my standing. Mm -hmm. I thought that the aesthetic and the ideas could be a great way to deliver messaging that was more based in what I felt. A song like Save or songs like Fallen Angels, those are at Legacy, those are ideas. They're not, mm -hmm. come on, stripper girl, let's do this. What, you know what I mean? Like all those songs yeah. that are pejorative or derogatory or misogynistic or stupid. Mm -hmm. Those songs to me meant nothing. But I thought, what if you could package the fun and craziness and actually say something? That was kind of the goal. The problem is that there's a huge reason why most of those bands had nothing to say. And that's because to inundate yourself with self abuse, essentially, when it comes to alcohol, drugs, whatever else, it's very hard to then sit down and go, I'm going to say something real here. Because you're like, well, I'm basically just a cartoon at this point. And if you're a cartoon, nobody really 
cares about what Bugs Bunny has to say about relativity and, the, and time and all these other things. People want a cartoon. So here I am coming out with seven foot hair and talking about fuck you motherfucker and screaming at people and getting into fights and swilling whiskey on stage. And then inside I'm going, I bet everyone's learning a lot from my genius today. You know what I mean? Like it's it, those, they're diametrically opposed. So, but I also think that that is what built this band's audience more than any other era. And so when you look at the fan base, people love that era for so many reasons. And I think chiefly because of the fun of it, the visuals and the the fuck you nature of it, for all of the regrets I have about how I handled myself in many ways in that era, the art and how it was presented, I truly love. And I think while it isn't something necessarily that I'm going to do tomorrow, it's not something that I want to X out of our past because it's not my favorite record. It's not my favorite era of the band, but it certainly was the one that brought the most people in to find us and kind of set us up for Wretched and Divine. While Andy believes this is a messy era for the band, and to some extent he's correct, it's also a necessary one. The Black Veil Brides of today wouldn't have become the group they are without this period in their career, as difficult as it was. Sure. I would I would argue that we certainly have material over the years that has been chiefly for uh, in my I talk about it in the book, the fourth record. I don't half the songs in the record. I have no idea what the fuck I was trying to say, yeah. but I was also completely fucked up all the time. So, yeah, again, you're you're tying one arm behind your back and then trying to, to fight. It's just not going to work. One of the most pivotal moments in a person's recovery journey is when they confide in someone else about their feelings and their decision. I wanted to know who was that person for Andy? Who did he talk to when he realized he needed to make a change? I would say that by the time I was stopping drinking, my association with the band was was minimal um, on a social level. And then also, you know, everyone's timeline is different for when they're going to stop. Uh, the exactly. first person in the band to sort of adopt a healthier lifestyle and to try to get out from underneath that boulder was Jake. Jake's mother passed away uh, tragically, and he was in a position where he wanted to make something better of himself. He felt like he had gone down a darker path, and he was telling us about that and showing it by working out every day, eating healthy, changing his lifestyle greatly. I, at the same time, was dealing with chronic pain issues and on pain medications and being misdiagnosed by 10 different doctors across the country and drinking excessively to deal with that pain. And so I was not, while I understood and respected his pursuit, for me, I, di it didn't, I didn't reflect it in my own interest in myself. And it took me a little bit longer to figure out where I needed to be to get away from the anxiety and the pain and everything else that I was dealing with. So in that time, I was more isolated than any any other time. You know, I wasn't really, it's not to say that I was in a bad relationship with the guys in the band, but I was more on my own than really probably I even should have been. I was in my thoughts and not really expressing those things. And also we were not in a place in the band at the time that we were really sharing with each other. You know what I mean? There wasn't really, whatever camaraderie was there was certainly something that maybe was on stage and then in in fits and spurts in moments but i mean part of the thing that the change in dynamic now is the band as we are now we talk about everything you know yesterday sitting and working with the guys on something and talking about our lives and talking about good and bad stuff and fun things and what we're doing what'd you do yesterday and 
calling each other up and getting together just to shoot the shit and watch a movie or whatever it is. None of that stuff really existed for a long time with the band. And where we are now, I'd imagine that if I were going through that, they would be the first people I would tell outside of obviously my wife or my family or whatever else. I don't think I could have imagined going, hey, you know who I'm going to tell about this? These guys, you know, and it's not because there was like a great disinterest or, or dislike. It was just that wouldn't have even occurred to me because it wasn't the relationship that we we had at the time. There's different motivating factors for everyone in terms of why you might want to make a positive change in your life, whether that's because of alcohol, drugs, being a shithead, whatever it is, those things, the motivation to get to a place where you feel like you can make self-improvement is different for everybody. And so, you know, I can't really understate how incredible it is that where we're at as a band now, everyone in the band is in such an incredible place in their life. Just like everybody's happy in different ways, you know, and obviously that doesn't mean that wall to wall, everything is great for everybody all the time in their life. But there is a general ease and happiness and excitement to to do this in a way that didn't exist in the past. And it for me, it's so exciting because when I first stopped drinking, I couldn't really be around it. So ultimately, for a myriad of other reasons, I was on a separate tour bus from the band once that happened. So we did tours, only one tour. We were kind of at a place where the band was about done. But at the time, I was on my bus. I would go into the venue, play the show, go back to my bus. And and that would be the only time really that I'd see anybody. And it's not to say that even anybody was doing anything crazy, but I just didn't want to be around anything other than what I could control, which was sitting in the back room, working out, eating my very specific diet and watching office reruns on my iPad. That was it. That was all I was doing on tour. When anyone in a band decides to make a major life change, be that getting married, having a child, or getting sober, it can change the dynamic of the group as a whole. But fortunately, in the case of Black Veil Brides, the evolution the members would undergo during this period in their career was absolutely what they needed to get ahead. Well, one of the cool things that happened for us was, it, you know, and it was it was fairly early on in the kind of rebirth of the band. We were just in the studio every day and we were getting so close and with Lonnie in the band now and just like there was just like a great kind of camaraderie that I felt for the first time that it was time to open up about those things. I mean, the band didn't even know about I have severe uh, nerve damage in my back mm-hmm. and I had sustained those injuries and never did anything about it and was going through extreme physical agony was being, as I said, put on all different types of medications, some of which made sense, some of which absolutely didn't, some of which are now banned by the FDA uh, subsequently. And they didn't even know that. And not because it was that it was certainly wasn't their fault that they didn't know it, but because I had never shared that. So suddenly telling them, hey, you know, five years ago, when it seemed like I was completely nuts. Here's a little bit of context to that. All of us have been able to grow closer because we've been able to share those stories. As my time with Andy begins to wind down, I start to ask him about the present day. He's been clean for a while, but does he still have temptations? Do cravings creep up when he least expects them? And if so, how does he handle them? The last time I felt tempted was the last time I drank. Yeah, which was the like record release party. I had drank, so I didn't, what what happened was I didn't drink at all for a long time. I, I did my first ever sober tour was the 2015 Warp Tour. I had reached my absolute peak depression and like, I can't go on this way prior to that. Someone that I had just become close with who was working on our crew that we had only known for about eight or nine months, but one of those, again, fast friends, Chris Holly, passed away. And there was just like this giant combination of I'm extremely depressed. This person who's my new friend just died tragically at a very young age. 
I am about to go on this warp tour. Things are crazy. What's the, what should I do? I need to fix myself. That, you know, and that was the kind of the like, I'm going to do this. So I went on that warp tour, didn't drink. It was my first tour eating like a, a vegan diet. Lost a bunch of stupid, you know, water weight, the kind of like the the skinny mm-hmm. fat thing where I was like a very mm-hmm. thin guy who was retaining alcohol all over my body and felt great. Didn't drink, didn't drink. We did American Satan, didn't drink. It was awesome. Things are going really well. And then at my wedding, I was like, well, you know, the night before I was, we had, I didn't have a bachelor party. I just had a dinner with some of our friends and I go, well, you know what? I'm going to drink here. And I did. And then blacked out within an hour. And then I was like, well, that's not good. So let's not do that again. And then wedding ceremony comes along. Don't drink all day. Late at night, decide when everybody's partying, I'm going to have a glass of wine, drink it, hate it, switch to sparkling apple cider, and then made the decision not to drink again. And then didn't drink until, well, I guess it was a month later that the shadow side came out. And then that was it. By the time that that night had come along, I had had enough let's give it a shot. Maybe I can make it work situations that, because yeah, I, you know, I'm very fortunate in the fact that I never had DTs. I never had a dependency. I never needed it to exist. My problem was always an inability to stop because once I had started, I had made the decision to become drunk. And for me, getting drunk meant blacking out. I was a blackout drunk for almost every time I ever drank. It was, I'm drinking, I'm drinking, I'm drinking, I'm gone. I'm back in the next day. And then if you're on tour, you have to drink to deal with the fact that you're completely depleted of all uh, everything your body needs to work. So I never had DTs. I never had to deal with anything like that. I feel extremely fortunate for that situation. But what I did have was, as you said, the hang, the, the context. And that was the only thing was once I was past the point of needing the hang or the context and being able to justify myself into a situation where, oh yeah, I should be drinking here. I remember laying in bed or like mid 2016 and going, and this is so stupid, but you know, like everybody has like their, their fun drink, right? There's like the drink you drink to get drunk. And then there's like the, oh, let's go to lunch. And my thing was like, I loved margaritas at lunch. Right. And I remember laying in bed and thinking, oh man, I'm really going to miss like having margaritas at lunch. Mm -hmm. And then I just didn't, (laughs) you know what I mean? And then it just never happened. I never had that moment where I missed it. And it just never really occurred. And to this day, I've not thought about it in a longing way. I've not thought about it in a tempting way. I just don't, I don't give a shit about it. And I, because I didn't give a shit about it when I was young, part of the reason that I wrote the book and part of the parts of the book are finding a way to get back to the child version of myself that was interested in the things I was interested in as a kid. And I was able to replace the stupid things with the fun stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. the comic book collecting and action figure collecting and sports nerdery and all that shit became so much more important and so much more fun than being out of my mind. As fun as his new hobbies are, not a day goes by when Andy is not reminded of his old life. I have a I have a Seagram 7 logo tattooed on my arm. Big, huge. That's not a good whiskey. That is <laughs> No, it's not. <laughs> but it was the whiskey of choice, you know. You know, like affectations of like, there's the kid in school who carries a cane for no reason, but like that's his affectation or whatever. Yeah. Like I've always loved affectations. I've always loved the Mm -hmm. idea of being the guy with this thing. And Mm -hmm. I think we became the band that drank this disgusting whiskey and it became part of our identity. So much so that when we showed up places, there's bottles of Seagram 7 there. Do you know what I mean? So like there's also, it appealed to my interest in affectations and in having, being the guy with the thing. When I went to high school, I used to dress as Alex from A Clockwork Orange, like to go to school. You know, there'd be a week where I'd wear orange gloves or there'd be a week where I'd wear green eyeshadow and green shoes. Or I loved 
when I was that age, especially having an affectation or being like an identifier, a thing that like, oh, that's this weird guy does this weird thing. Mm-hmm. And so there was a huge kind of um, team sports element to it. Like this team likes this thing and we're these guys that do this thing. I just don't really have any interest in that. I still have that to a large degree. There's 400 Batman logos behind me. There's things about <laughs> me that yeah. I certainly like to have as brand identifiers or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. But they're genuine interests of mine. They're not affectations that are being done to try to put on airs. And mm-hmm. the booze and all that stuff to me was always, you know, for all the reasons that people accused me or the band or anything else of being posers in our early day, I would say there's no bigger pose than everything but the music. It was all the the ancillary stuff. It was the the pose was I'm a, a not a particularly cool person who has terrible social anxiety and is interested in things that maybe aren't necessarily seen as very cool. And yet here I am trying to present to you that I'm the coolest rock star in the world. That's that's a pose. While Black Veil Brides may have been associated with Seagram 7 in the past, Andy is known for so much more today. As he explains here, he's been able to indulge in many of his interests outside of music as well, including becoming the voice of Batman. I have done things with DC uh, mm-hmm. over the years that were me doing something relating to Batman that were unpaid gigs that I was more excited about in some ways than things that I have been paid to do because it was the like acknowledgement that I am the resident Batman guy. So much so that I've been asked to model for this thing or do this thing or whatever it is like that. I'm like, fuck yeah, I'll be there for whatever it is. I'm the fucking voice of Batman on something, man. That's pretty fucking cool. Oh, yeah, cool, I forgot. Right? You did the voice of Batman. Maybe it's in the cards. <laughs> hey, man, I, that's the funny thing is, like, when they called me to do that, I said yes before I even knew what it was. They said, would you want to do the voice of Batman? And I went, yep. And I didn't even know what in what context. Maybe they could have said over the phone right now for us to record and laugh at, and I would have already agreed. You know, the the ego thing is interesting, and maybe this plays into everything, is, you know, there is, there's a certain, I talk about it in the book, there's a certain level of, like, just kind of insufferable self-belief that you have to have to some degree in order to do this. And to me, that also plays into kind of flights of fancy, where I never put it out of my mind that I could play Batman in something. Like, you know what I mean? Like, even there was never a time where if you had said, do you think absolutely you'll never play Batman? I would have gone no. And still, at this point, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything to indicate that I would ever play Batman in any live action setting. And yet I refuse to take it off the table as a possibility (laughs) because my mind won't let me get rid of that thought just yet. I think it's safe to say that when Andy writes or speaks or shares his thoughts in any way, people listen. And as he's become more transparent about his struggles, his fans have come to him with their struggles in turn. Andy loves to listen to what his fans have to say, and his heart goes out for them. But like us, he doesn't necessarily believe in giving advice. He believes in the power of suggestion to push people towards making better choices, but he would never claim to know your life well enough to give you advice. So when fans come up to Andy and ask him for help or suggestions or guidance, this is what he has to say. First of all, I don't know. I don't know shit. I don't know anything more than anybody else. I, you know, it sometimes it boggles my mind how somebody gets a little bit of success or fame on some level, and then the level of self-seriousness or the belief that you suddenly now are more anointed or knowledgeable than somebody else. It's a little ridiculous. I am someone who has been granted the golden ticket to get to be a person who sings songs and designs characters and dresses up in costumes for a living. That does not suddenly make me 
consciously aware of how to help so, somebody else in their life. So the only thing I can ever speak to is my own experience. When I listened to Born to Run, a song that was written uh, nearly 30 years before I was born, I relate to it on a level of how it reflects in my life. Not because I think Bruce Springsteen wrote the song about me, but because when I listen to the song, I go... I'm from a small town. I want to get the fuck out of here. All those things, those are things that are reflected in the art, but it's not, he didn't write this song and go, Andy, check this out. I wrote this about you. You know what I mean? And I don't need him to have done that. To me, the responsibility of art is to, it, some people say the responsibility of art is to hold a mirror up to your audience. To me, the responsibility of art is to hold a mirror up to yourself and then show other people that mirror and go, this is me. This is what I am. If it inspires you, that's fantastic. If the things that I'm making connect with you on some level, that's amazing. The things I say are relevant to your life experience. That's wonderful. But at the end of the day, this is me, and I'm not presuming to know what your life is. So the advice I try to give to people is only to think more about yourself than you do about me or anybody else. Do not consider the way that my life trajectory was in the way that you shape your own. If something that I have done inspires you in some way, then that's fucking awesome. And I'm going to continue to make stuff that I hope inspires you. I don't care how you feel about Black Veil Brides or their music. I find it impossible to believe that anyone can hear the story and experiences and motivations that guide Andy Black's life and not like the man behind them. He is a textbook example of building the life you dream of and not letting things hold you back, especially when you recognize that they're bad for you. Andy has made tough decisions and seen the positive results of those choices. And I want the same for you. If you or someone you know is struggling, please get help. The High Notes team is here to support you, and we are happy to provide resources that point you towards the path to recovery. As always, I'm your host, James Shoutwell. High Notes is a production of Holix.com. This episode was edited by Laura Hardy with additional marketing help from Liam Delmonico. Our theme song was written and recorded by the band You, Me, and Everyone We Know. Our logo was created by the great Nick Farron. There's more high notes on the way, so please stick around. But if this is your first time hearing the show, know that there are more than three seasons of material already available on your favorite podcast platform, as well as YouTube. You can also find high notes on social media. Look up High Notes Pod. That's High Notes P-O-D. Again, we will be back very soon, but until then, I want to make a small request. No matter what you do in this life, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.